Good morning. It is great to be worshiping with you today. Uh, thank you to Corey and the worship team. Thanks so much for leading us in worship and for helping us to lift up Jesus and proclaim his goodness today. I am going to pray, and then we're going to reflect on this passage from Luke chapter 18 together. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is no one like you. You are the great rabbi. You are the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You have reconciled us to our heavenly father. We need you to teach us. We need you to uh, purify us. We need you to uh, empower us by your spirit to live your life today. So we submit to you and we look forward to what you have for us. We pray in your name. Amen. So today our sermon is going to follow basically three movements. If we have time, we might cut out the middle one. But we're going to start by looking at this text and we're going to focus on how Jesus reminds us, calls us to live in the reality that we always need God's reconciling mercy. We just always need God's reconciling mercy. I think we're going to talk about how our cultural context makes that complicated for us. And then we're going to talk about how we can live out this reality of um, helping one another live in God's reconciling mercy day by day as a church. So let's read Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord. So Jesus, in this particular parable, has a very specific audience in mind. You notice that Luke says, to some, to some. There's some people who have a particular mindset, a particular attitude, and Jesus is talking to them. And guess what? These are people that we love to get annoyed with. People who place their confidence in themselves that they are righteous and look down on other people. Now, I love that it says some because Jesus, I mean, Luke clearly thinks that there's some people that this is not true of. I mean, thank, thank goodness for people who are merciful and humble. But have you ever met somebody who is self-righteous, who is so confident in themselves that they are righteous, that they then despised everybody else? How did you feel about that person? <laughs> right? And don't you hate how when you despise that person, you're just becoming exactly what they are? Oh, it's so frustrating. We're so trapped. So trapped. So Jesus tells us this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So uh, let's get the picture here. Uh, you have to go up to the temple in Jesus' time because the temple is on a hill. They call it the Temple Mount. 
So you have to go up to the temple. The time of day that these guys are probably going to the temple uh, would be when they are sacrificing what's called the tamid. It's one of the lambs that they sacrifice every day. Actually, they do two sacrifices every day. And it's, a, it's an expression of atonement. God is purifying his people. The priests are offering the lamb to God as an atoning sacrifice. Very, very common. And people would go to pray in public. So for us, when we, go to, when we say I'm going to pray, we often mean I'm going off somewhere somewhat private. Maybe I'm going to go to my room or I'm going to go to a private meeting with some friends and we're going to pray together. That's not what's happening here. In this context, prayer is actually public worship. And during that worship service where they're, going, where they're going to sacrifice the lamb, there's time for people to offer their prayers to God. And so you've got these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. I'm not going to say too much about them yet. Except to say that we are totally primed to think badly of this tax collector already. And I want to tell you that Jesus' audience was not primed in that way. They would not have expected the outcome of this story. So the tax collector goes up, and, he, and during the time of the worship service, when it's time for him to speak his own prayers to God, he prays, and, and as is the custom with his people, he stands before God, raises his, his, uh, his head to heaven, maybe raises his hands as well, and he says, I thank you, God. Notice he starts off by giving God thanks, and he thanks God for who he is, not for who God is, but for who the he himself is, right? And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, as Canadians, we despise this man. We just think, how awful. How could anybody be in the room and think that this is okay, right? We just think it's terrible and evil. But this is where we have to check our cultural lenses, right? Each of us, we all come to the scriptures with glasses on, and these glasses tell us already how to read it. So when we listen to people who have a different perspective than us, we kind of realize, well, maybe there's something else going on here. There are, uh, there's a particular Jewish scholar, um, Amy Jill Levine, and other scholars as well, who have noticed that this man prays like some of the psalmists write. Let me say that again. This Pharisee prays in a way that is similar to how the prayers of the psalm are written. Can you think about a psalm where it says, God, please deal with me according to the innocence of my hands, according to my cleanness in your sight, right? And there are times where it says, who can ascend the Lord's hill? The person whose hands are clean, who, who has a pure heart, who does not rip people off, who, does, who keeps their word, Right? The psalmist often proclaimed to God, I have been righteous. I am not like the wicked. Why are you treating me unjustly, God, when the wicked are getting away with easy lives? So the psalmists often draw this distinction between the righteous, who they are, and the wicked, who are the other people. It's very common. So maybe this Pharisee isn't praying in a way that, that Canadians would hear him pray. Maybe his prayer is not actually as stuck up and arrogant as we think it is. Then he goes on and he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. This man is committed to his religious life. This man is committed to living out what we call Torah or the faithfulness of God's law. He fasts in order to purify his life. And he doesn't just fast occasionally. 
This guy so wants his life to be pleasing to God that he fasts twice a week. Not just on high holy holidays, but twice a week. It goes above and beyond. And when he gives, he doesn't just give, you know, the, if you've been in, in church conversations, sometimes we have this, uh, this question. Are you supposed to tithe on your net or on your gross income? Right? So do you give God, if you're going to give God a, a 10% of your income, are you going to give it before taxes are taken off or after taxes are taken off, right? Because if you, if you tax on the amount you were paid before taxes, you're going to pay, you're going to give God more than if you tithe on the, the net income after the taxes have been taken off, right? It's a conversation people have had somewhere. If it doesn't make sense to you, I'm sorry. Because um, <clears throat> it's, it's not a good conversation. Um, but this guy's saying, I don't just tithe on my gross income, I tithe on everything. Somebody gives me a gift for my birthday, I give 10% away. My wife gives me uh, candies for, for, for a special treat, I give 10% of those away to the kids. I just, I give 10% of everything. The man is generous. And again, lest we read him through Canadian eyes, uh, you'll remember we've been reading in our, in our Bible study on God's generosity to the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, We've been reading from Deuteronomy 26. And in Deuteronomy 26, God instructs his people, after you, have, uh, after you have been through a few years and you've harvested a lot and it's time to bring your tithe, come and proclaim what you have done. Say, I have not withheld anything. I have given to the people I need to give to. God, I have brought it all. So this public righteousness is not in itself offensive. Now, Again, there are a lot of reasons why our Canadian sensibilities look at this and say, no, right? There's some of us here who have Dutch background or Scottish background where you value this privacy in the family. Like, you never speak about what you do. You never speak about your own righteousness publicly. You'd never do that. You might think all sorts of things on the inside, but you'd never do it publicly, right? So that's, we just have to remember that there are uh, some significant cultural lenses that we have to deal with here. So, a couple things to note about this prayer. Number one, the prayer itself would not have struck Jesus' listeners as offensive. But number two, there is a massive self-focus in this prayer. This Pharisee is quite concerned about, what, like, about who he is relative to other people. And his righteousness, as we know in our, in our context, when, when we have people who are good examples, we honor them, right? We want other people to see, look how that person is living. Their life is righteous in a way that y'all should follow. Think about him in that mode. He's so righteous that his community would say, probably we should be like him. His public goodness is evident to all. But he's definitely self-focused. And you'll notice also that his prayer, even though it's biblical, his prayer is biblical, it still hides this fact that he despises other people. He can be praying in the same room with somebody and write that person off underneath the shroud of a righteous prayer. That makes sense to us, I think. On the other hand, you have this tax collector who stands at a distance. So 
the Pharisee might stand by himself because he doesn't want other people who might be unclean to touch him. The tax collector, on the other hand, he stands at a further distance, and he is so filled with a sense of his own inadequacy before God that he does not want to lift up his eyes. He doesn't want to lift up his head. He, even though, like I said, according to custom, people would stand in the presence of God and lift up their, their eyes to heaven to speak and pray, he will not do that. Instead, all he can do is pound on his chest, which I have never, ever done in my life except right now, and it hurts. I don't express my anguish of heart in that way. My understanding is that in the Middle East, that is an expression. Like, men will beat their chests in a way it just, when you are just ripped up inside, and you've got to, like, express it with your body. He's beating his chest. He's heartbroken. But all he can do is look, is cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, when he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, remember the context. He's in the temple while they are sacrificing the lamb. And that word that we read as mercy is not just, God, please be kind to me. It's, it actually means, God, please reconcile me to yourself. Please make propitiation for me. I have sinned against you. I am a sinner. I am bound in a life that is offensive to you. I need you to make me right before you, oh God. That's what he's saying. God, reconcile me to yourself. I cannot do it on my own. Propitiate. Make propitiation for me, oh my God. As a quick Theological aside, that word propitiation, we don't use it very often. It means to deal with the hostility that exists between two people by basically um, doing whatever it takes to get the wrath of the person who is offended dealt with. So this goes back, one of the greatest examples is when the uh, people of Israel are, have, have been led out into the wilderness. Moses gets called up the mountain. He's been up in the mountain 40 days receiving the teachings of God, the Torah. And the people look around and they're like, where's God? Where's Moses? Where's God? We don't know. So they, tell, so they say to Aaron, make us a big, um, make us a, a, an idol and we'll call that our God. So Aaron collects their gold, makes his idol out of ca- uh, uh, an idol out of gold in the shape of a calf and they worship it. And they say, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt. And the living God who actually brought them out of Egypt is angry at them. And so Moses has to intercede on behalf of the people, and he does. He makes propitiation before God and gets God to, uh, to turn away from his wrath and to be merciful. And this is what the tax collector is saying, God, be merciful to me, have mercy on me, uh, reconcile me to you, propitiate my sins. Here's the problem, though. <sighs> what this guy does He doesn't do anything beyond feel intense feelings and pray an intense prayer. The scriptures are very clear that when you have actually sinned, so if I steal something from somebody, yeah, I should come to them, I should give back the thing that I stole, and I should give them 20% more. I can't give a sacrifice to God and have an unrepentant heart. Similarly, I can't say that I have an unrepent, or I can't say that I'm repenting and then not make the sacrifice, right? I can't say that I'm repenting of harming somebody and then not do something to to make it right. 
So this tax collector, sure, he's got intense emotion, an intense prayer, but what does he do to actually demonstrate his repentance beyond that? But Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, he, when he goes home, he's the one who has been made righteous before God and not the other one, not the Pharisee. Because anybody who exalts themselves will be humbled and anybody who humbles themselves will be exalted. So if we wanted to catch just how shocking and offensive this parable might have been to Jesus' hearers, and I hope I don't, I do not do this to be offensive. If we were to flip this, we would say, okay, a civil rights leader went to church and a KKK member went to church and the civil rights leader prayed and the KKK member prayed and the member of the KKK went home justified before God. It's harsh. What's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? One of them is obviously living a good life. He's the kind of person that we all should be like, as Jesus, thought, uh, Jesus' audience would have understood. The tax collector understands that he's a sinner. He begs God to make him right before him. But is that enough? How is that enough to be made righteous before God? Well, I think, and this is not a surprise, I think that what Jesus is saying is that the people who are publicly righteous and do not understand that they have an ongoing need of God's reconciling mercy are unrighteous before God. Whereas even those who are publicly unrighteous, when they know that they need God to make them right with him, when they need God's reconciling mercy to set them right, they will be made righteous because God is the only source of righteousness and God alone justifies lost sinners. It's hard. This is hard. And it's wonderful. It's also wonderful mercy of God that he delights to justify, to make righteous sinners. Sinners who know that they need him. Have you ever um, thought about, have you ever thought about how easy it is to become like the Pharisee? Right? Like I said in, in the beginning, right? When, when somebody in our life is self-righteous and arrogant and they love to despise other people, we love to talk about them. Right? And we love to despise them, which is just doing the exact same thing that they are already doing. When we are particularly gifted, when our lives look good to other people, it is so easy for us to, to think, okay, because this community respects me, because this community sees that I'm really trying to honor God, I'm good. But underneath, there's this corruption. There's this there's this arrogance and pride that we have not dealt with, we have not brought to God yet. And, there, and, and this looks different depending on the family or the culture or the society, the city, the community that you're a part of, right? 
Because each culture or society sets the standard for public righteousness. There are some things that if I do them here in Canada in a predominantly white context, totally good to go. It's fine. It's acceptable. In fact, I will earn trust. If I do the same thing in a community of Nigerian or community people, I will offend people and I will be labeled as unrighteous. I'll be labeled as somebody who is completely, completely not to be trusted. For example, many years ago, uh, Kimberly and I were parenting our little ones, who are not so little anymore, and we were doing it in, uh, in a context where there's some Korean university students, and, um, and then us, right, our family, and there were some, some uh, white students as well. And so they, these students were watching us interact with our kids. And there were enough times when those students came to us and said, if I did to you what your kids are doing to you, or if I did to my, sorry, they would come to us and say, if I did to my parents what I see your kids doing to you, I would get slapped. Like, it would just be like over, right? Because they saw our kids interacting with us in a way that they, that in their context, they would consider as rude inappropriate, right? Speaking too directly, too forcefully to their parents. Like, how is that okay? But for us as Canadian parents, our children's behavior was acceptable. And not just acceptable, we, we could redirect their behavior. We could still instruct them to be respectful using different techniques than our students had grown up with at home. Can relate to this? But imagine if somebody who grows up in a home like mine is used to speaking forcefully and directly to adults, which my kids are not necessarily used to. But if we're taught, right, that the way to deal with adults is to look them in the eye, tell them what you think, even criticize them, that that is actually respectful. And we've come from a community where that's the case. Then we go to a Korean context or a Nigerian context, and a young person does that to an older person. How does that go? <laughs> it does not go. <laughs> it does not go. No, it goes nowhere. Exactly. So what looks righteous in one context, in another one, is unrighteous. It actually is unrighteous in another context. So take that a, next, take that a step further. Now, I'm not trying to speak on behalf of anybody in this room, but I know what it's been like to be among my relatives, Lebanese-Jamaican relatives, and to not quite understand how everybody's relating to each other over there. Because my world is dominant culture Canadian most of the time, right? And then I am over here expected to do dominant culture Canadian things, but there's something that doesn't make me feel quite right about it. Because I also come from this mixed family. So some of us actually are kind of like, we're like righteousness hustlers, okay? We know the codes, we know the way to be respectful and to do what's right in one cultural context, and we know how to do that in another cultural context, and so we flip, right? We flip back and forth, but the problem is that in the middle of it, we lose our sense of ourselves, and we really run the risk of being despised in one context 
and despised in the other. Because each culture sets itself up as being the authority, as being the source of true righteousness. And when we don't conform to those norms properly, they will, like that culture decides who is it okay to despise. And each culture has a category of people that it's okay to despise, right? Might be different, but there's always somebody in every cultural context that it is acceptable to despise. But not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. This reality that we always need the mercy of God applies to our cultural communities as much as it applies to us as individuals. Canadian cultural context, dominant white culture, is not righteous in itself. It hides all sorts of evil. As any cultural community also hides all sorts of evil. We cannot be righteous before God based on self-righteousness in a cultural system. Is that making sense? How good is it then that God is unfailingly merciful? That when we are condemned by people in one cultural group and when we are condemned by people in the other cultural group, those cultural groups are actually judged by God on the cross of Jesus Christ. They are not righteous. They do not have the authority. The final say belongs to God who makes us right before him. So when we have been maligned and despised by these cultural communities, we have a defender, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, no, I have made you right before my Father in heaven. And what other people have said about you is not the final word. Whether you're a tax collector, whether you are whatever else people have permission to despise, Jesus' blood speaks a better word on your behalf than the voice of condemnation from whatever cultural community you come from. That is amazing. That is freedom. That is joy right there. But it's also this call to radical humility and ongoing dependence on God. Because I never lose the need for God's reconciling mercy. There is never any point at my, in my life when I stop needing Jesus to have died for me and made me right before God. There is never any point at my life where I cease to need God's reconciling mercy. So the question becomes then, how do we as a church live this out? Well, that's one of the reasons why we actually need each other from different cultural backgrounds, right? We need each other from different cultural backgrounds because people who are coming from a different cultural background can look at me in my cultural context and be like, you can get away with stuff that's actually not okay. And I can look at them and say, you're right. Maybe I should learn to repent, right? Because people can perceive things in me that my culture would make me blind to. When there is trust, when there is friendship among us and as followers of Christ, and we're saying, Jesus, make us right before God, and we want that together, then we can help each other. People from different cultural backgrounds can help each other perceive how we need God's mercy. So let's talk a little bit more practically about what this could look like for us as a church. First of all, 
Gathering for worship is absolutely essential for us. Because when we gather for worship and we proclaim who God is and we read the scriptures and we lift up what God has done in Jesus Christ, we are saying that we are not righteous on our own basis. We are saying that we've never need, we, we never stop needing God's mercy. And we remind each other week by week that God never fails to be merciful. And we help each other receive the mercy of God when we gather for worship. We have to gather for worship as the church. And there are people out there in our lives, our friends, who have not quite got this yet, right? They, they think that gathering on Sunday morning is somehow, maybe it's not, not quite optional, but they don't quite, maybe they haven't tasted the power of Jesus in this context. I don't know what it is. But when we disconnect from the worshiping community, we're moving towards saying, like, my righteousness, my walk with God on my own, just on my own, is enough. And there's a lot of voices in our culture that would say, oh, yeah, you bet. But that's just not true. We need each other in community to help each other receive the mercy of God, to see the truth about ourselves, and to believe Jesus, to receive his mercy for us. When we come to the communion table, we are proclaiming that our righteousness is not enough, that we have no righteousness in ourselves, but that Jesus has done everything on our behalf to make us righteous before God. When we hear testimonies about people who say, like, I need you to pray for me because I'm really struggling. Friends, that testimony is a way for us as a whole church to say, yes, like, let's help each other receive the mercy of God. Nick did a great job a few weeks ago of just inviting us to pray for him as he was in need of God's mercy and power in his life. And we got to gather around him and we get to celebrate God's faithfulness in his life. And there are some of us who don't, um, when it's testimony time, we just think, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. Like, that's not, that's for other people. No, it's for you. Testimony time is for you. It's for you. Because you're part of the body of Jesus. And what you will share in testimony time, whether a need or a celebration, it will help us all receive God's mercy. Second thing, we really desperately need discerning and honest Christian friends. Discerning and honest Christian friends. I'm talking about the kinds of friends who know all your tricks and they understand your context enough to know when you are making your self-righteousness look like it's dependence on God, right? Because as at, like we can always pray prayers that say the right thing and our hearts could be away from God. We need friends who can see through it and friends who will tell us the truth and say, hey, this thing that you're doing right now, like that's not actually expressing the faith in Jesus that you are talking about. Now, very few friends know how to say that kind of word to us directly. That's why we need people like that in our lives. We need people who are discerning and honest friends who can see where we need God's mercy and who can help us receive God's mercy. People that we can confess our sins to and say, you know what? I need God's forgiveness. Friends who help us keep on receiving God's mercy. Second, well, third thing, prayer. We need ways to pray that help us live in the reality that we need God's mercy. So let me give you a couple really practical examples. Um, there was a, a guy named John Cassian who lived, I think, in the 600s. And this guy was from maybe Romania or something like this. 
And he and his buddy decided that they wanted to go travel around the Mediterranean and get down to Egypt because they wanted to go learn from the monks of Egypt. So they did. They traveled all those kilometers back in 600. I mean, their legs must have been quite firm and their feet very calloused and hard. And they went and they found the monks. And they, they said to the monks, teach us, teach us how to be holy. Teach us to pray. And one of these monks said, the beginning of all prayer is this. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. When you are fasting and you just want to eat, pray, oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. When you are falling asleep and your mind is tormented with all sorts of disturbing thoughts, and particularly they're male monks, right? So they're all consumed about, like, sexual thoughts. So when you just can't stop thinking about women when you're falling asleep, think, Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. And do not let anything move you from that prayer. When I read that a couple of years ago, I thought, let's try it out. So there are many things in my life that would torment me on the inside. And I would just begin to pray. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. I'd be praying that in a conversation with somebody where I just thought, you know, I'm going to be tempted towards pride. I'm going to be tempted towards insecurity, whatever. Oh, God, make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. And my goodness, when you set your mind on a prayer like that, something happens. God gives us strength. Another very, very famous prayer that is quite in the similar mode is called the Jesus Prayer. And this is the prayer that blind Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a very, very famous story coming again out of the Eastern Orthodox tradition of a man who prayed that prayer incessantly, never stopped praying that prayer. And his soul over time was so used to, 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 to being open to the mercy and love of God that his life was filled with the holiness of God. And these short little prayers are prayers that we can build into our lives in like regular, all the time kinds of ways. Uh, a, a, a dear friend of mine um, was trying to learn how to pray this way. And so her spiritual director said to her, whenever you pull up, when, whenever you stop your car while you're driving, pray this prayer. So she'd pull up to a stop sign and pray the prayer, right? She'd stop at a stoplight and just repeat the prayer over and over and over again. When we pray in that way, what it does is it sets our minds and our hearts on receiving the mercy of God. And we can pray that way right in the middle of the most intense situations. You got to discipline your kid? Oh, God, <laughs> make speed to save me. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me, right? You're having a conflict with somebody at work? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can pray for God's mercy for that person. Just in your spirit, pray for God's mercy. And what ends up happening is that we see, we begin to see in our own hearts the ways that we try to make ourselves righteous. And Jesus gives us a way to repent and to, to receive his mercy in that moment. So, those three practical things. Number one, corporate worship really matters. Number two, Cultivate friendships with discerning Christians who know your tricks and want to help you receive God's mercy. And number three, learn to pray. Learn to pray in ways that keep opening you up to God's mercy. Because we never stop needing God's reconciling mercy. And God never stops giving it to us because he loves 
to reconcile lost sinners to himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your 